following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. Imagine taking your car uh, to a mechanic because it's not running smoothly. It's vibrating. It's making a screeching noise. You take it to the mechanic, and after looking at it and working on it, they tell you that they realigned your wheels and topped off your fluid, and you should be good to go. But shortly after leaving, you realize that you are not good to go uh, because while your wheels did need aligning, that was only half the problem. Your brakes, it turns out, are on the brink of failing. See, having aligned wheels is great. It's even necessary. But if you get a wheel alignment without addressing the failing brakes, it's dangerous, maybe even deadly. Whether it's in the realm of cars or medicine or even theology, there's always a danger of just being half right. Indeed, as we see in our passage today, when it comes to something as significant as the identity of the Messiah, to be half right is to be all wrong. It's to be heading toward a crash. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, after making his uh, triumphal entry, On Sunday and cleansing the temple on Monday, Jesus has now in his final week on Tuesday continued teaching the disciples and the crowds. But as soon as he has stepped foot into the temple courts to do this, he's immediately been met by the temple leaders for what has become a series of five confrontations, five confrontations to get him to commit blasphemy or at least to embarrass himself in front of the crowds. So now it's Tuesday late afternoon, maybe early evening, and Jesus has been at it all day. Chapter 12 covers just a few hours, and yet we've been looking at it since the beginning of August, and we still have one more chapter, uh, one more week to go before we see how the events finally play out. And as we've seen, what's happening throughout this chapter is Jesus is becoming more and more explicit about his identity. If these temple leaders and onlookers want to know who he really understands himself to be, come on, Jesus, just just tell us, who are you? He spells it out for them in the passage today. Here's what I think is the main idea of Mark 12, 35 to 37, the main idea of the passage and therefore the main idea of this message. The Messiah is not less than a human king, but he is infinitely more. The Messiah is not less than a human king, but he is infinitely more. Because this passage is so short, 
fact, it's probably the shortest one I've preached at RCBC. Uh, instead of artificially breaking it up, we're just going to first look at the whole thing, get our minds around what it means, and then reflect on five lessons in light of it. So first, let's just look at these three verses and figure out what's going on. Verse 35, while Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked. Now, pause. <laughs> He's been bombarded with questions all day. Now he has one for them. <laughs> As someone put it, after a day of questions comes the question of the day. Why do the teachers of the law, Jesus asks, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? This is his first explicit reference to the category of Messiah since entering Jerusalem two days ago. And notice, he's raising the question not to disagree with the premise, but to get them to think. What do Israel's leaders expect the Messiah to be? Who is it that they are really looking for? This idea that the Messiah would be David's son, David's son, that is one of his descendants, was uncontroversial as a belief. A thousand years earlier, God had sworn to King David, 2 Samuel chapter 7, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And this load-bearing covenant promise from 2 Samuel chapter 7 that the Messiah would physically descend from Israel's greatest king is constantly reaffirmed throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. From Psalms to Isaiah to Jeremiah, from Ezekiel to Hosea, from Amos to Micah, there was this sense of crackling anticipation in the air as the Israelites made their way forward century after century that one day all those those old prophecies would come true. Prophecies such as Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah 9, written 300 years after David, still 700 years before Christ. You don't have to turn there, but just listen. It'll put you in the Christmas spirit. Isaiah 9, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. Are you starting to hear echoes of that promise from 2 Samuel 7? Then Isaiah gets explicit. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. It's a glorious, exalted, soaring promise. But remember, at the time of Jesus, the, the people of Israel were far removed, far from what this promise holds out. Far from the glorious picture of, of a Messiah reigning worldwide. The, the only person they saw reigning was Caesar and Herod and the other pagan rulers of Rome. And yet, and yet, hope still persisted that one day 
in the fullness of time, there would come the liberator, the conqueror, the ultimate king. Jesus here is forcing the temple leaders to think again about this. And it's not just about the relationship. He's not just getting them to think about the relationship between David's bloodline and the Messiah, kind of in a general way, but also he wants them to think about where this hope is arising from. Where does this hope, this promise, this anticipation that the Messiah will come from David's bloodline, where is that coming from? Well, it's arising from the parchment, from the scrolls of Holy Scripture. And so in verse 36, Jesus takes them to a particular psalm. And not just any old psalm. It's arguably Jesus and the apostles' favorite one. And in our day and age, we love Psalm 23. I love it too. But what was Jesus and the apostles' favorite psalm? A good case could be made that it was Psalm 110. Out of 150 psalms, none gets quoted more often in the New Testament than this. Go ahead and and turn there with me. Psalm 110. You'll find it near the, the middle of your Bible. Psalm 110. Not only is this the most referenced psalm in the New Testament, but Jesus here in Mark 12, he is taking the temple leaders to the New Testament's most referenced verse. The most referenced verse, Psalm 110.1, is quoted or alluded to some 33 times in the New Testament. Why is that? Well, you'll see there in the superscription at the top, it's a psalm of David. A psalm of David. This is a thousand years before Jesus. And here's what King David says in verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. On the surface, this phrase, the Lord says to my Lord, might sound kind of nonsensical, as, as if we were referring to the, the same person, like the governor says to my governor, or the president says to my president. But if you look carefully, you'll notice it's not that. It's not actually the same person. It's two different words in Hebrew, which our English Bibles help to make clear. Notice, the first Lord is capital L capital O, capital R, capital D, which is the Old Testament's way of rendering God's personal covenant name. Everywhere in the Old Testament, you see LORD in all caps. It's referring to the word Yahweh. The second reference is not the word Yahweh, but rather Adonai, which is a more generic title Lord. And so what David is literally saying is, Yahweh says to my Adonai, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This was a coronation psalm. It was read every time a new king in Israel was installed over the people, and it had everything to do with the people's expectation, their longing, their hope for not just the present king who was being installed, but for the ultimate king who one day would come. Now turn back to Mark 12. 
what Jesus is doing in Mark 12, 36 is showing the Bible experts of the day. I mean, that's what I love about this. He's not showing this to a group of random Gentiles on the side of the road. He is showing the Bible experts of his day a dilemma they've never noticed. He draws their attention to the verse we just looked at, Psalm 110.1, that supreme passage of messianic expectancy and says, look again. You don't yet see. Verse 37, Jesus explains, David himself calls him Lord. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? This would have been a a mic drop kind of question and observation. I mean, in ancient culture, The son was always subordinate to the father. What dad would ever call his son, much less his great-great-great-great-grandson, his Lord? Again, Jesus is forcing these biblical PhDs to think. Why would David identify a future descendant as his own personal Lord? That only makes sense. Jesus is suggesting, if the Messiah, the Messiah that you temple leaders are hoping for, it would only make sense if that Messiah was not only David's son, but also David's sovereign. And that is only possible if the Messiah you're looking for is actually not only David's son, but God's. Despite the fact that these leaders are standing in the temple court, so they have their scriptures, they're standing in the temple courts, they have the home court advantage, as it were. Jesus is taking them to their own book, and they have no answer for this prominent verse. That's what's going on. It's a simple interaction. But what can we learn from it? Well, I can think of at least five lessons that we can and should draw from this brief passage. First of all, your Bible is inspired. That's lesson number one. Your Bible is inspired. Look again at how Jesus phrases the beginning of verse 36. Look again at how Jesus phrases the beginning of verse 36, when he's introducing Psalm 110, David himself declared, no. He says, David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared. David wasn't just a mouthpiece for God's people, but also for God's spirit the third person of the eternal trinity. It's verses like this that have caused Christians throughout the century to affirm the simple truth that where Scripture speaks, God speaks. If you write in your Bible, write that in the margin. Where Scripture speaks, God speaks. That's what we derive from verse 36, which is another way of saying the Bible is inspired. 
Where it speaks, God speaks. Now, that word inspired, it's, it's a technical term uh, that's very easy to misunderstand today because of how we typically use the word. Okay, so to say that biblical writing is inspired is not to say that the Apostle Paul saw a gorgeous sunset and then sat down and wrote Galatians. That's not what we're, that's not what we're talking about. Nor does it mean that God merely dictates these words to some kind of passive robot and, and David or Mark or Paul enter this catatonic state and maybe recite the words to a friend and then immediately when that catatonic state is over, they pick up the parchment and say, let's see what God said. No. First and foremost, inspiration has to do with the fact that the Bible's ultimate author, not its only author, but its ultimate author is God. 2 Timothy 3, 16 is explicit. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Did you hear how the Bible describes the Bible? God breathed, exhaled from him, from him. So if this is true, if the scripture is his word, if he is the ultimate author, then what were David and Mark and Paul doing? I mean, weren't they writing Holy Scripture too? Well, yes. The Bible that's in your lap is the words of both God and man, but more precisely, the words of God through man. Peter, who was in Jesus' inner circle and was Mark's primary source, uh, lest we forget, Mark's primary source for, for this gospel, he explains it this way in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. No prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. You hear that? He's referring to the, the Hebrew Scriptures. He's saying no prophecy of Scripture, including the ones we've already looked at from David and Isaiah, no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things, Peter writes, for prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, God made sure that the human authors wrote exactly the words he wanted them to write, no more and no less. But again, this doesn't mean they were passive robots. God didn't erase their personalities. He didn't commandeer their minds. David, Mark, and others wrote as thinking, feeling human beings. God worked not around, but through, through their unique personalities and backgrounds and educations and experiences to enable them to write divine truth. So, you have to keep these two things in your mind. The Bible is a library of books, and the Bible is one book. The Bible is 66 books written by over 40 authors with many subjects, and the Bible is one book with one ultimate author with one ultimate subject, which leads to the second lesson. What is that ultimate subject? Lesson number two, your Bible 
is about Jesus. Your Bible, which is inspired, is about Jesus. Just think for a moment about how often Jesus has referenced Scripture just on this one Tuesday afternoon standing in the temple courts. Just in chapter 12. At the beginning, he tells the parable of the wicked tenants against the backdrop, if you recall, of Isaiah chapter 5. And immediately after, he takes those Pharisees to Psalm 118. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. In the next scene, he's approached by the Pharisees and Herodians who have a question for him about paying taxes to to Caesar, and he immediately takes them back to the Imago Dei, the image of God in Genesis chapter 1. And then the Sadducees slink up to him, and they have a question about marriage in heaven, and he takes them all the way back to the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. And then one solitary scribe asks him a good faith question about the most important commandment, and he takes him to two places. Deuteronomy chapter 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus Christ was utterly immersed in the word of God. And in passages like the one we're looking at today, he appeals to its authority. The Son of God appeals to the Word of God, in this case to Psalm 110, to show that even the songs of David, even the songs of Israel's most prominent king were pointing beyond themselves. They were just like road signs on the highway pointing beyond themselves to the ultimate king, the ultimate deliverer, the Messiah of Israel, and the Savior of the whole world. Jesus puts it plainly to the Pharisees in John chapter 5 when he says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. But these are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. It's been said that if the New Testament is Jesus Christ revealed, the Old Testament is Jesus Christ concealed. Or as the the theologian B.B. Warfield once put it, the Old Testament is like a room full of treasures, but the room is dimly lit. It's filled, that treasure room, that dimly lit treasure room is filled with prophets that predict him, patterns that promise him, and promises that anticipate him. And if, if you were to take a sweeping view of the Bible's topography, as it were, if, if you were to have an aerial survey of the biblical landscape from 30,000 feet in the air, what would you see as it pertains to the Christ? You would see that the Old Testament is anticipation, the Gospels are manifestation, Acts is proclamation, the Epistles are explanation, and Revelation is consummation. Your whole Bible is an epic story about Jesus. And why? Why is Jesus so central, so ultimate, so unequaled, unequaled in the pages of this book and in hearts around the world? Because only he came to earth 
truly God and truly man, and lived a perfect life, died an atoning death, rose to vanquish sin, Satan, and death. See, as I, as I said earlier, Jesus was everything that Adam failed to be, everything that Israel failed to be, and everything we have failed to be. He succeeded where we have not. The author, the author of the, not just this book, the author of the universe has designed us to worship him and enjoy him and know him, but we've offended him because of our rebellion. And so as we saw couple weeks ago. We, we deserve nothing but his back. We deserve nothing but silent treatment from him. And yet he, the author of the story, has stepped into his own story to salvage it. Above all, the story of the Bible is one of rescue. God becoming man to bring man to God. And though each of us Every single person in this room deserves separation, eternal separation from God because of our rebellion. Jesus went to the cross in the place of sinners to pay their penalty. Jesus loves to forgive. He doesn't merely begrudgingly do it. He doesn't just tolerate having to do it. Jesus Christ gushes over in a willingness and desire to forgive. He loves to forgive. That's why he came, and he loves to make things new. That's why he's coming again. Simply turn to him today, friend. In repentance and faith, put your trust in him, and you can know him. You can walk out of here today with the confidence that he is not your judge, no longer your judge, but your father and your friend. In the meantime, as we await that coming day when he returns to make all things new and to bring his people home we should approach the entirety of our Bible focused on Christ, the one in whom God's promises are always yes and amen. Lesson number three. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. This is what he's artfully getting these temple leaders to consider. If Israel's greatest monarch, he's saying, if Israel's greatest monarch of all time looks at one of his future descendants and calls him Lord, then how can that future descendant, that future Messiah be anything less than God? In other words, Jesus is provoking the thought, not just that he's the Messiah, but that as the Messiah, he is not merely human. The Messiah is truly human, but the Messiah is not merely human. And this has massive implications because if Jesus were truly and merely human, merely human, then you and I, this morning, would still be lost in our sins. See, sin is an infinite, eternal offense because it's committed against an infinite God and only an infinite being could pay that infinite price. I'll say that again. Sin is an infinite offense because it's committed against an infinite God and only an infinite being could pay that infinite price. 
as John Piper provocatively asks, how can one man in a matter of hours, Jesus was only on the cross for three hours, how can one man in a matter of hours drain the cup of God's wrath that would have taken an eternity to pour out on me? Answer? Because the man on the cross draining that infinite eternal cup of wrath was not a mere man. He was not a mere godly man. He was the God man. Last year, Ligonier Ministries released their biennial, you want to feel depressed today report? (laughs) It's the biennial state of theology report. And of all the American evangelicals surveyed, evangelicals, defined in this survey, not as those who hold a certain political belief, but evangelicals defined as those who self-identify as holding to evangelical beliefs, 43% agreed with the statement, Jesus was a great teacher, but was not God. Which is another way of saying that 43% of professing evangelicals are not yet Christians. Now, it's easy for us to kind of roll our eyes and scoff at the abysmal theology or lack thereof in so many churches out there. But how often are we tempted If we're just honest, how often are are we tempted to settle for half-truths about Jesus? After all, that's what this interaction in Mark 12 is about. Having a half-truth about the Messiah. He's the son of David, but not the full truth. That he's also the Lord of David. He's not just the son of God. He is, he's not just the son of David. He's the son of God. How often do we functionally, not, not confessionally, you can't be a member of this church and confessionally disagree with that, you, you, with that statement. How often do we functionally reduce Jesus to something less than he is? Just think about it. How might we confess, uh, reduce Jesus to something less than he is? Maybe we reduce Jesus, it's possible to reduce Jesus to a family heirloom, family heirloom Jesus passed down from your parents, cosmic psychotherapist Jesus who exists to make us feel better about ourselves, boost our self-esteem, political mascot Jesus who just so happens to never disagree or challenge any of our political opinions. Insurance agent Jesus, who's just a call away when we need him, but otherwise is safe to forget. Santa in the sky, Jesus, who sees you when you are sleeping, who knows when you're awake, who knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. And who, if we avoid naughtiness, will reward us with some nice stuff. Life coach Jesus, who gives us pep talks and tells us to be the best version of ourselves, but doesn't demand total, complete, comprehensive, mind, soul, 
body strength obedience. We could go on and on with examples of ways we're tempted to reduce Jesus, to shrink him to size, to get him small enough to fit into our convenient little agendas. J.I. Packer once said that a half-truth, a half-truth masquerading as the whole truth becomes a complete untruth. And when it comes to the Lord, and when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, to be half right is to be all wrong. The carpenter from Nazareth is the one true and living God. Lesson number four. Jesus is reigning now. Jesus is reigning now. Do you ever wonder what Jesus is up to these days? Just like what he's doing between his second comings? Is he just in kind of this heavenly holding pattern? Well, a big part of the answer of what he's doing is what we confessed earlier in the service from the Apostles' Creed. The third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he shall come to judge the living and the dead. Despite the evil that wreaks havoc in our worlds, despite the, the headlines that foster and provoke anxiety, debilitating anxiety oftentimes in our hearts, the Son of God incarnate is not up there fretting. He's not sweating. He's sitting. He's sitting. He's alive and well. No wonder Psalm 110 became for the apostles who were experiencing subjugation under the thumb of Rome. This became the dominant proof text for the exaltation of Jesus. Even though things look ominous now, and if you think they're ominous here, imagine living there in the Roman Empire. The Messiah has died, risen, ascended, and been enthroned at the place of all power, and in the fullness of time, he will come again to make all things new. And this means that, again, in the meantime, the Messiah of Psalm 110 is sovereign and good. He is sitting. He's not freaking out. He has all things under his control, which means, beloved, that you don't have to be afraid. You can enter this week not petrified, not terrified about that medical diagnosis, about that challenge in your job, about that job change altogether, about that relationship, how your kids will turn out, whether you'll get married at all, the moral decline of American culture. As Americans, we live in a democracy, but as Christians, we don't. As Christians, we live in a kingdom. And this kingdom, the Messiah's kingdom, doesn't have an expiration date. This is why the call to worship earlier in the service was from Ephesians chapter 1, where the Apostle Paul is reflecting on the modern-day New Covenant implications of passages like Psalm 110. And he says, that power is the same as the mighty strength that God exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And 
he goes on to talk about how that rule and reign is presently exercised, not through a nation state, but through his holy nation, the church. Life on this earth, beloved, is, is just an internship. You, re- you realize that? Your life now is just an internship for a better world in which you will reign as kings and queens of the universe under Christ. He is reigning now, and one day we will join him. Lesson number five. Lesson number five, delighted listening. Delighted listening is not enough. Delighted listening is not enough. Look again at the end of verse 37. End of verse 37. It doesn't say the people listen to him with scorn. It doesn't say the people listen to him with suspicion. It says they listened with delight. They loved it. They couldn't get enough of it. They were hanging on his words, and yet there is no indication that they were right with God. Mark has used this identical phrase about enjoying listening to Jesus one other time in his gospel. Chapter 6, verse 20, in reference to the way King Herod liked so much to listen to John the Baptist. But in chapter 6, verse 27, in other words, just seven verses after we read how much King Herod loved listening to John the Baptist, we read, Herod sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. It may be a dramatic example, but the point is plain. It is not enough to be a fan of God's messengers, a fan of God's prophets, a fan of God's son. Hell is filled. Friends, this is deadly serious. Hell is filled with people who were impressed with Jesus. Hell is filled with people who were enamored with him, who liked to listen to him, who even agreed with him, who affirmed that in so many things he was right, but who just refused to personally confess him as Lord. Do you see the implication of this passage? Even if you view Jesus as an exalted figure, as the messianic son of David, but don't yet see him and bow to him as the Lord of David, indeed the Lord of heaven and earth and the Lord of you, then you're still a stranger to his mercy. We thought about this back in chapter 8. Remember when Jesus asked his his disciples at Caesarea Philippi that, that question? He says, who do people say that I am? And do you remember how they responded? Some say you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others, one of the prophets. In other words, you're in really good company, Jesus. This is going well. You're polling incredibly impressively. You're being spoken of in the same breath as some of our greatest heroes. And yet, despite these high and lofty perspectives on Jesus, every single one of them was still too low. And friend, this lesson confronts us again in chapter 12. 
it is not enough to have a high opinion of Jesus if that opinion is still too low. Richmond is filled with people. It certainly describes your neighbors. It certainly describes your classmates, your coworkers, your friends. It may describe you. People who have no problem with Jesus. They respect him, maybe even revere him, maybe even pray to him, so long as they get to remain finally in charge of their lives. Are you fine with Jesus being in your life? I mean, maybe you think that's all that being a Christian is, is just letting Jesus be a part of your life. Are you fine with Jesus just being a part of your life? And by the way, this question is not just to non-Christians. We should all consider this question. Even those of us who profess to follow Christ, even those of us who genuinely follow Christ, do we think about having Jesus as a part of our life the way we think about adding an app to our phone? Maybe you've got him on the home screen, easily accessible, but at the end of the day, he's something you can ignore. Oh friend, Jesus Christ is not interested in just being an app in your life, a useful but ignorable part of your life. And if that's what you've relegated him to, then frankly, you are no better off than these Pharisees in the first century. You don't yet grasp who he is because Christianity is not about getting a new Jesus app. It's not about adding him to your story. It's about submitting your life to his. I love that Jesus is here taking public that question. You know, he asked the disciples privately, who do people say that I am? And what he's doing here in chapter 12 is he's putting that question publicly and climactically to the religious leaders because the shadow of the cross is looming. It's Tuesday afternoon. Good Friday is coming. The shadow of the cross is looming. The moment of truth has arrived. I'm sure, friend, you have many good questions for God, but here, God the Son incarnate has one for you. Who do you say I am? Beware of delighted listening. Even to the sermon, delighted listening that stops short of repentance and faith. Well, in conclusion, Jesus has once again left the temple leaders reeling. He's overturned their tables, exposed their hypocrisy. All they can do in this chapter is essentially say, who are you to walk into God's house and act like you own the place? To which he has said over and over, essentially, exactly. I do own the place and I own every one of you because I am not just David's son, I'm his Lord. And even though I'm standing with you this afternoon in the temple courts, before long, before you know it, I will be raised from the grave and seated and installed and enthroned at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. You, he's saying to these temple leaders, you have missed the big E on the I chart. Psalm 110 is about me the Messiah, the Son of David, and Son of God. It's not enough to be half right. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would guard us as a church from settling for half-truths about you and the identity of your Son. Lord, we confess that even if 
theologically and confessionally we're not tempted to do that, that so often functionally we are tempted to reduce you to a convenient size that will fit into our lives like an app on our phones, and we repent of that, and we pray that we would be so enchanted, so enamored, so overwhelmed with a vision of your glory and your grandeur and your beauty that we would want to settle and live for nothing less. And it's in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, we ask for help. Amen.